Welcome to Summer Talks. It was only so long before I sang a song. Yeah, I mean, that's that's fair. It's got to happen at some point. It does. Just, it's like taking medicine. Deal with it. I, n- no complaints. So who are you? I'm Corey Kraft, and I co-host this podcast. And I'm Rachel Morgan, and I am the creative director for Sidewalk Film Festival and Cinema, and we are here to talk to you, with you, about... At you. <laughs> <laughs> at each other, scream, about... Movies. Movies. They're they're fun. Sometimes. Let's do it. And now, a look at what we're watching this week. So, Rachel, what have you been watching recently? Okay. Well, you know, this is kind of... I feel like I caused the universe to do something. Oh, Lord. I know. I why know. I why s- would you do that? I take personal responsibility. Um, I started re-watching Sex and the City. And then sure enough, after I started re-watching Sex and the City, yeah. what news comes out, Corey? Yeah, a revival on HBO Max with three of the four original cast members. And is, can it be Sex and the City without Samantha? You are far more of an expert on this it subject than I. It cannot be. It cannot be. She, she is, like, you can go without Charlotte. You cannot go without Samantha. I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you. But Kristen what, Davis somewhere is just like, oh. Yeah, she really cares. <laughs> um, you know, Kim Cattrall is, you know, that's my girl. She used to be a mannequin. She know. did. I mean, that is canonical. <laughs> Uh, but we talked about Sex and the City in, in a recent outro because I was basically saying that you were the, you know, I, I can't remember what it was. I think you called me Charlotte. I think you were the Charlotte, which I just got done saying we can do without. Yeah, the dispensable um, one. So that and I was out. Samantha. Anyway, uh, it made me want to get shirts that are like, I'm the Carrie and revisit that. And I was like, you know, I just revisit the show. And so here's what's interesting about revisiting Sex and the City. And I'm on episode like 10 now. I, uh-huh. I, you know, I'm not a big binge watcher in, in sense of like episodic work. I'm a binge watcher for for work itself, you know, when I have to watch a bunch of films, but I'm not one to do it, but I I will. It's been a nice way to kind of end the night. What I've discovered is it feels like a very nighttime show. No surprise. Even though a lot of it takes place during the day, it's just a, it feels like an evening show, maybe because I used to watch it at night, but also, I mean, the content is up there. So anyway, I've been watching it in the evenings when I've had a chance. I'm on episode like 10 and it's, it's, it's fun for this reason. On one hand, it's really dated. Mm Mm-hmm. On one hand, it's like, whoa, look at the costumes. Whoa. You know, it's so, you know, pop culture like the trends that they're talking about, all the stuff. Um, and there's also a really inexcusable use of a frame rate. Mm, yeah. Like there's a lot of examples of just, oh, that frame rate is not okay. That was the style at the time. Though, Ew, it to, is. To mess it, around with that sort of thing. Totally. It is vomitous. So anyway, that's the one hand where it feels really dated. The other hand is that you are talking about subject matter that is universal and kind of timeless. Mm-hmm. Dating, you know, living in a city, the hustle bustle of it all, and you know, just sort of friendships and human relationships. Those things don't really expire <laughs> until you get to the pandemic, um, which is also what's fun about it is that it's really nice to feel a little bit more like I'm in a community and, yeah. and around people. It has that – it's sort of bringing that into my – into my space. And I, I like that a lot just to be reminded that, yeah, there's another side of this and we will all hopefully one day be able to be in a room together again, because there's something magical and horrible at the same time about, you know, piling into a restaurant and trying to get a table. All the things that you thought you wouldn't miss, there's a little ring to missing them. And this is a reminder of that. And this, um, interestingly, Corey is like, I, I'm sure, you know, you don't sound like you've watched this much, but this, no, not much. In the intro credits, the Twin Towers are there. Yeah. So it's a very, I mean, it's it's got more age on it than you might even think. Um, but it's been fun to watch. I kind of, I recommend it. There's things that I forgot about, like a modelizer. Mm-hmm. Like they bring up these sort of terms. They throw a bunch of terms at you and a bunch of sort of really kind of fun 90s era stuff that's, that's 
you know, in the early 2000s, clearly we'll get to. Um, but it, it's fun for that reason. And it, it's also there in the in the title. Like, it brings what it promises, right? Yeah. That it's like, it's about those two things. It's about sex and sexual relationships and, and sort of the friendships are all about bouncing that off of, of one another. Um, that, you know, where, where people are in their relationships. And then it's so New York. I mean, it's so, so New York. It's, it's, it's really great in that way. Yeah, it was it was never a show I've really watched. I saw, I, I guess I saw the movies for some reason. I didn't really care for the movies. I, I, Much different, yeah. The movies aren't particularly well regarded by even fans of the show. But it was always a show I would catch a little bit of when I was, because um, I, I think uh, Six Feet Under mm-hmm. came on after yeah. it. And I watched Six Feet Under when I was a, a teenager when, when it was airing. Um, the Sopranos, I think, at one point or another, followed it. Maybe, maybe not. I, I think don't. It, I think it was. I I really think it might have been Six Feet Under, and that tracks that you wouldn't have watched Sex in the City, but yeah. you would have watched Six Feet. Under. Yeah, oh, that was exactly the sort of weird teenager that I was. I was just like, mm, no thanks to Sex in the City, but Six Feet Under. Now that right. is my jam, uh, and it was. I mean, I still love that show. Um, so I don't really have much experience about it, but um, you know, it it still has its devoted following, obviously, and. Um, you know, hopefully the reboot or revamp or whatever you will call it when it hits HBO Max will live up to. Oh, I don't know. Well, I mean, I they, mean they, they're not on a good track record with the films either. And I mean, there's sure. a notorious, sadly, what's going on, too, is there's a notorious rift between uh, between a couple of the actors on the show. Yeah. Clearly, Kim Cattrall being at the center of all that. Um, and her and such, Sarah Jessica Parker having sort of this famous rivalry. And I hate that because the friendships are really the glue that holds this thing together. There's, you know, clearly that's that's what, you know, what the show is, a, is, is at the heart of the show. I'll put it that way. Um, anyway, I don't know. I just overall recommend watching it. It's light. It's really fast. You know, these it's, it's sitcom um, format in the sense that it's like, you know, a good you're 28 minutes and you're out of there. It's just a really quick, and a lot happens in that time. Mm-hmm. Like, they just cover a lot of ground. It feels very, very fast. And, and, and because you're constantly sort of moving from one character to the next and bouncing between them, it just feels like it has such energy. Yeah. And, and, and that, is, that is also the landscape of New York, is this sort of very fast-moving place. And so I, I think it's a good, if you're, if, you know, if you're finding yourself again because of the pandemic home more, I, I actually think it's a really good watch for this, for this era. Okay. Uh, even though it wouldn't be an obvious one because of all the factors I just mentioned. But yeah. anyway, you know, that's me. What are you watching? So uh, the Criterion Channel uh, this month has posted a uh, series, I, you know, they publish like big uh, collections of movies, I guess, uh, following themes. And this month they posted a collection of the films of Jane Fonda. So I revisited cool. – or I, actually, I saw a couple of those for the very first time that I wanted to talk about. Uh, two Oscar winners, two kind of big deals, one of which isn't really regarded, I think, as a classic. But it's uh, one of Jane Fonda's breakout roles. It's in the 1965 comedy western Cat Baloo. Mm-hmm. Um Cat Ballou won an Oscar for Lee Marvin in a double role as like the the gunslinger who is menacing um, the family of this this young woman played by Jane Fonda, the titular character, but also this drunken gunslinger she hires to protect um, herself and her family. The movie is you know uh, kind of this musical comedy about this young school teacher who gets involved with a bunch of dissolute bandits and becomes one herself. And the best thing about it is to see um, a very young Jane Fonda sort of let loose and be, you know, comedic and fun 
in ways that I think her screen persona did not necessarily allow for, especially throughout most of the 60s and 70s. Um, she's really bubbly. Um, Nat King Cole uh, is one of the sort of traveling troubadours mm-hmm. who sings um, uh, throughout the movie. Uh, and Lee Marvin is indeed pretty fun, though I couldn't tell you how or why he won an Academy Award for those performances. <laughs> um, the other is slightly better regarded um, and more memorable. It is Clute. Um, yeah. The movie for which Fonda won her first Academy Award for Best Actress. Um Co-starring Donald Sutherland. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, what can you say about it? It's an Alan J. Pakula um, paranoid thriller shot by the amazing cinematographer Gordon Willis um, with those two actors yeah. at the height of their game. Um, Fonda plays a sort of um, uh, very – uh, forthright and um, independent sex worker um, who kind of gets tied up in the disappearance of a a rich man. Donald Sutherland is the rich man's friend who's been kind of hired to figure out what happened to him. The plot doesn't really matter all that much. It's a bunch of shadowy sort of paranoid stuff. It's all about vibes and atmosphere and performance. Yeah. And while I didn't quite cotton on to what Sutherland was doing in the movie, you know, that's kind of... His his part to me is kind of the weakest element of the movie. Fonda's amazing in it, and and she totally earned that Oscar for that movie. Um, so both of those are recommends. Clute more than Cat Baloo, I yeah. think, um, but well worth seeing, especially if like me, they're blind spots for you. Yeah, nice. Well, that's a good time to get caught up on a couple of things. So yeah. that's uh, it's good to hear. So I guess that's what we're both watching. That's right? what we've been watching. What up? And now we'd like to welcome Charlie Brown Sanders III to the studio for his segment, Film History Minute with Charlie Brown. Who Framed Roger Rabbit is the only time cartoon characters from Walt Disney and Warner Brothers have appeared together on screen. Although the film's title is a question, no question mark appears in the title, as this is considered bad luck in the industry. There were over 40 drafts of the script for Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and the plot Judge Doom's master plan to dismantle the red car trolley is actually based in historical fact. Screenwriters Jeffrey Price and Peter S. Seaman both admired Chinatown very much and knew there were to be two sequels planned for the film. The first was The Two Jakes, which was eventually made, and the second was to be about corruption in Los Angeles when the streetcar system was undermined and freeways were built to replace them. It was to be called Cloverleaf, Although it is an animated comedy, Who Framed Roger Rabbit pretty much tells this exact story of what would have been covered in this never-filmed post-noir sequel. Bob Hoskins, who portrays Eddie Valiant, said that for two weeks after seeing the movie, his young son wouldn't talk to him. When finally asked why, his son said he couldn't believe his father would work with cartoon characters such as Bugs Bunny and not let him meet them. To get the feel of acting with cartoon characters, Bob Hoskins studied his three-year-old daughter's playing with imaginary friends. Bob Hoskins had to do a lot of his acting in front of a green screen, only visualizing the cartoon characters that were added in later. In a 1988 interview for Danish television, he said, I had to learn to hallucinate to do it. After doing it for six months, for 16 hours a day, I lost control of it and sort of had weasels and rabbits popping out of the walls at me everywhere. Hoskins didn't take another job for an entire year. 
Director Robert Zemeckis stated in a newspaper interview that Bill Murray was his original choice for the role of Eddie Valiant, but he could not get in contact with him in time. Bill Murray read this interview in a public space and screamed out at the top of his lungs because he definitely would have taken the role. With an estimated production budget of $70 million, this was the most expensive film produced in the 1980s. The film's original budget was projected at $50 million, which Walt Disney Productions felt was too much. The film was finally greenlit when the budget decreased to $30 million. However, when the film's shooting schedule lasted longer than originally expected, it escalated to $70 million. When Disney originally viewed director Robert Zemeckis' two feature films, I Want to Hold Your Hand and Used Cars in 1982, they felt he wasn't talented enough to pull off the movie. But after he made Romancing the Stone and Back to the Future, Disney reconsidered this position. To convince the Disney and Amblin executives that they could make the film, filmmakers shot a short test involving Roger bumping into some crates in an alley and then getting picked up by Eddie. After viewing the test, several of the Disney executives were convinced that they had seen a traditional man-in-a-suit gag with added animation. They couldn't believe it when they were told it was a 100% piece of animated film. For this movie, animation director Richard Williams set out to break three rules that previously were conventional for combining live action and animation. First, move the camera as much as possible so the tunes don't look pasted on flat backgrounds. Second, use lighting and shadows to an extreme that was never before attempted. And third, have the tunes interact with real-world objects and people as much as possible. Every frame of the movie that featured a mixture of animation and live action had to be printed up as a still photograph. An animator would then draw that particular illustration for the frame on tracing paper set on top of the photo. The outline drawing then had to be hand-colored. Once that was done, the drawing had to be composited back into the original frame using an optical printer. 326 animators worked full-time on the film. In total, 82,000 frames of animation were drawn. One of the biggest challenges faced by makers of the film was how to get the cartoon characters to realistically interact with real on-set props. This was ultimately accomplished in two different ways. Motion control machines hooked up to an operator who would move the objects in exactly the desired manner. Then, in post-production, the character was simply drawn over the machine. The other way of doing it was by using puppeteers. This is most clearly seen in the Ink and Paint Club. The glasses held by the octopus bartender were in fact being controlled by puppeteers from above, while the trays carried by the penguin waiters were on sticks being controlled from below. The wires and sticks were simply removed in post-production and the characters added on top. When Eddie takes Roger Rabbit into the back room at the bar where Dolores works to cut apart the handcuffs, the lamp from the ceiling is bumped and swings. Lots of extra work was needed to make the shadows match between the actual room shots and the animation. Today, bump the lamp is a term used by many Disney employees to refer to going the extra mile for an effect just to make it a little more special, even though most audience members will never know. Since the movie was being made by Disney's Touchstone Pictures, Warner Brothers would only allow use of their biggest toon stars, Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck, if they got as much screen time as Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck. For that reason, they were always in pairs, such as the piano battle between Daffy and Donald and the parachute scene with Bugs and Mickey. During production, there was disagreement over the way the Looney Tunes characters should look. Warner Brothers wanted the filmmakers to use the characters as they appeared in their merchandising at the time, while the producers insisted on having the characters look the way they had in the time period the film was set, the 1940s. Dummy footage, using the modern designs, 
was sent to Warner Brothers for approval, while the animators used the period-appropriate designs in the actual film. Several voice actors make cameos as the voices that they have played before. These are Tony and Slemo as Donald Duck, Wayne Allwine as Mickey Mouse, and Mel Blanc as Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Porky Pig, Sylvester, and Tweety Bird. This and Daffy Duck's Quackbusters were the last appearances by Mel Blanc as he died a year after the film's release. But most noticeable is Mae Questel as Betty Boop. Mae did Betty's voice from 1930 until the character was retired in 1939. Mae then became Popeye the Sailor's Girlfriend, Olive Oil. Who Framed Roger Rabbit is the first live-action and traditional animation hybrid Disney film to be rated PG by the MPAA, mainly due to its adult-based content and situations. It would have been a PG-13 film if it had come out after the 1980s when the MPAA got stricter about these themes. While the film was very well-received by critics, it has not been without detractors. Chuck Jones, in particular, who worked on the film, ended up loathing the final product because he called it an obnoxious, witless misunderstanding of the old cartoons it set out to honor, and he even accused Robert Zemeckis of robbing Richard Williams of any creative input. The first test audiences were mostly 18 to 19-year-olds who hated it. After almost the entire audience walked out of the screening, Robert Zemeckis, who had final cut, said he wasn't changing a thing. In addition to negative test screenings that unfazed Robert Zemeckis, an experimental teaser trailer was test-marketed several months prior to its release to a similarly dismal response. Bob Levin, president of marketing at Buena Vista, was so horrified to overhear one audience member compare the teaser to Howard the Duck that the trailer was discarded without evaluation of the scores. On the DVD main menu, you can press down button four times on Benny's speedometer. If you press enter after this, you can watch the original trailer. So thanks so much for listening to Side Talks. We're your own personal cinematic Baby Yoda and Babadoop. Wait, how do those two (laughs) go together? Oh, I don't know. Like somebody posted something on social media that was like, wait, is, is... the you know baby Yoda the new Baba Duke. I don't know why they would say that. I don't watch the show. So is there some connection that you can tell me about? No, there's nothing. Um, but baby Yoda is really cool, and the Baba Duke is cool. Well, then just be happy that are I they, mentioned. Are them. they both? You know, are they both like gay icons now? Is baby that's what baby I was Yoda thinking. Like a new is, gay icon. Is there a gay? Is there a gay storyline? No. that I don't know about. <laughs> no. <laughs> but that didn't matter for the Baba Duke either, did it? No, baby Yoda seems a little gay. <laughs> I, that, that, that must be it. That must be it now. Seems a little gay. So that's what it is. Okay. Anyway, do well, Baba do. If Duke, that wasn't Duke, a thing Duke. before, it is now. There you go. So thanks to uh, Batwall Studios for putting up with shit like what I just did <laughs> and um, sidewalkfest.com. And uh, check us out on social media at Sidewalk Film on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for the latest Sidewalk news. And uh, most of all, thank your damn selves for listening this far into the podcast and listening at all, really. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Bye. Batwell Studios Podcast Division. Your words, our expertise.